Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, Chairman Council of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CI members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and financial regulation and CII's related advocacy activity. This update covers the period from March 3rd to March 31st, 2021. Let's start with the United States Congress. On March 3rd, House Financial Services Committee ranking member Patrick McHenry of North Carolina and Representative Bill Heisinga of Michigan reintroduced H.R. 1584, the Protecting Retirement Savers and Everyday Investors Act. The legislation would amend the Dodd-Frank Act to prohibit states from imposing financial transaction taxes on certain industry participants including stock exchanges and broker-dealers, which would be paid by out-of-state investors when the financial transaction tax is passed on to them. On March 9th, the Senate Banking Committee held a hearing to examine the volatile activity in a dozen stocks earlier this year and the practices that encourage that activity. Committee Chairman Sherrod Brown of Ohio observed that in recent years, The growth of fintech and financial services has given rise to trading platforms that offer free stock trades. Chairman Brown alleged that such firms were founded on a model that exploits small investors by encouraging fast and loose trading and then sells their trades to big market players. He also argued that the Securities Exchange Commission and others should examine and consider how to reduce risk in the financial system by cutting the time it takes to complete stock purchases, adding that everyone would benefit from such changes. Ranking member Patrick Toomey of Pennsylvania similarly suggested that regulators pursue a faster settlement cycle for securities transactions, including same day or real time, emphasizing that a shorter settlement period could reduce certain risks and require less collateral by clearing securities which may reduce margin charges and other fees that are passed down to investors. Ranking member Toomey cautioned, however, that lawmakers and regulators should avoid a knee-jerk reaction to impose unnecessary restrictions and burdens on investors that could limit investor access to and choices in the stock market. Stressing that regulators are still investigating whether any existing laws and regulations were broken, and that we have yet to see any evidence of wrongdoing or that the regulatory regime failed to function as intended. On March 10th, the Senate Banking Committee favorably reported to the full Senate by a vote of 14 to 10, the nominations of Gary Gensler to be an SEC commissioner for the remainder of the term expiring June 5th, 2021, and for a term expiring June 5th, 2026. March 17th, the House Financial Services Committee held a hearing to examine the January 2021 stock market volatility and discuss, among other topics, the potential conflicts of interest between payment for order flow and best execution, short sale disclosures, the shortening of securities transaction settlement periods, and the so-called gamification of securities lending. Chairwoman Maxine Waters of California noted that her goal in continuing to scrutinize these events and related policy issues is to ensure that our capital markets 
are fair and transparent and that investors have strong protections. Chairwoman Waters argued that the events in January cast a spotlight on gaps in regulation of our capital markets to stress that lawmakers must assess what legislative steps may be necessary. She also announced her intent to convene a third hearing on these topics to hear the perspectives from regulators who oversee these markets. Ranking member Patrick McHenry of North Carolina expressed concern that the committee majority is using recent market events to justify more regulations, greater restrictions, and put costs on businesses and everyday investors, and argued that regulatory efforts to impose additional disclosure requirements and investor fees could create perverse incentives, bad policy outcomes, and rampant inequality in our capital markets. Hearing, hearing witness Michael Blagrun, the chief operating officer of New York Stock Exchange, testified that the exchange supports the growing consensus to accelerate industry settlement cycles from two days to one day after the trade, noting that although a shorter settlement cycle increases the potential for an operational error, the capital efficiency to be achieved by the industry is likely to be worth the risk. Hearing witness Michael Piwawire, the executive director of the Millican Institute, urged the Securities Exchange Commission to, one, release a staff report examining the potential impacts associated with movement to a shorter settlement cycle, and two, to solicit public comment on the potential transition. Mr. Pivowar stressed, however, that the SEC cannot move beyond T plus two on its own, and that the transition will require the involvement of the federal banking agencies as shortening the length of time between when a trade is executed and when securities and cash are delivered to the buyer and seller respectively will require improvements in the speed of bank payment systems. Accordingly, Mr. Pewawar suggested that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen initiate a security settlement work stream under the auspices of the Financial Stability Oversight Council to coordinate regulatory efforts related to whether and how to shorten the settlement cycle. On March 18th, the House Financial Services Diversity and Inclusion Subcommittee held a hearing to discuss the voluntary disclosure of diversity and inclusion data by financial institutions pursuant to Section 342 of the Dodd-Frank Act. Subcommittee Chairwoman Joyce Beatty of Ohio argued that only through the transparent examination of performance benchmarks will we achieve lasting and sustainable opportunities for women and people of color in the financial services sector. Chairwoman Beatty highlighted the introduction of the Diversity Data Accountability Act, which is legislation that would make the sharing of diversity data pursuant to Section 324 of the Dodd-Frank Act mandatory. In addition, Chairwoman Beatty announced that she and Committee on Financial Services Chairwoman Maxine Waters sent requests to the nation's 31 largest investment firms for institutions diversity and inclusion data and policies from 2016 through the present, including information on one, workforce and board diversity, two, spending with diverse suppliers, and three, challenges implementing diversity and inclusion policies and practices. Subcommittee ranking member Ann Wagner of Missouri argued that as lawmakers consider policies related to diversity and inclusion, it is important that they remember to structure them in a way that is flexible and durable. 
and caution that a one-size-fits-all approach will not allow the financial services industry to reap the benefits of our country's diversity. Two members of the Council of Institutional Investors testified at the hearing. New York State Comptroller Thomas DiNapoli explained in his testimony that last year, his retirement fund withheld support from 227 incumbent directors at 55 companies that did not include underrepresented racial minorities among their nominees. He indicated that during the 2021 proxy season, the fund will expand its voting position at SP 500 companies and will vote against all incumbent directors at companies with zero directors identifying as an underrepresented minority and will vote against all incumbent nominating committee directors at companies with just one director identifying as an underrepresented minority. He said investors lack standardized disclosures on diversity inclusion data and blame inaction on this issue on the Securities and Exchange Commission under the Trump administration. He called on the commission to mandate disclosure of data such as internal pay equity and express support for the Improving Corporate Governance Through Diversity Act of 2021, which requires disclosure of data based on voluntary self-identification on the racial, ethnic, and gender composition of a company's board and nominees for a board seat, as well as executive officers. Hearing witness Ann Simpson, the Managing Investment Director of Sustainable Investments for the California Public Employees Retirement System, also a CII member, testified that the Pension Fund's board recently adopted a new diversity and inclusion policy to foster internal efforts in this area. She stressed investors' need for data to fully understand capital allocation, litigation, stewardship, and diversity efforts. Ms. Simpson noted that CalPERS has engaged with more than 800 companies in the past few years, and over 500 of these companies have now appointed diverse board members. Also on March 18th, the Senate Banking Committee held a hearing to examine potential risks to the financial system associated with climate change. Chairman Sherrod Brown alleged that market participants know far too little about how much climate-related risk is sitting on the books of banks and insurance companies. Chairman Brown stressed that the public needs to know where Wall Street is investing people's hard-earned savings, which he argued requires consideration of stronger transparency rules and whether the tools financial watchdogs already have can help shine a light on these risks. Although he acknowledged that some large banks and other companies voluntarily disclosed climate change risks for some investments, he raised concerns that not enough of them have and suggested that when we increase transparency across the financial sector and take into account the clear economic costs of climate change, then lenders, industry, and workers will be rewarded by making capital investments in efforts to reduce or eliminate carbon emissions. Ranking member Patrick Toomey emphasized that financial regulation supervision isn't meant for advancing environmental policy, arguing that any changes to environmental policies deemed unable to adequately address climate risk should be enacted through the legislative process, not through financial regulation. With respect to recent suggestions that the Federal Reserve require banks to conduct a climate scenario analysis, he expressed concern about significant shortcomings and gaps in climate models and data and highlighted that banks already evaluate the risk and respond accordingly. Also on March 18th, Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the Senate Banking Committee Chair and Ranking Member encouraging the committee to enact the SEC as Investor Advocacy Act of 2021. 
The CIA's draft legislation would direct the Securities and Exchange Commission require U.S. stock exchanges to set certain minimum listing requirements recommended in the SEC Investor Advocates 2020 Annual Report. Specifically, the draft bill directs the SEC to adopt rules requiring these changes to prohibit the listing of initial public offering that one has two or more classes of common stock with unequal voting rights without a time-based sunset, or two, fails to disclose the diversity of its board of directors and senior executives, as well as a company's efforts to promote diversity. More broadly, draft legislation would give the commission clear statutory authority to set minimum listing standards that apply to all exchanges for investor protection purposes. In the letter, CII says requiring multi-class voting structures to sunset within a reasonable specified time period after an IPO would allow founders to avoid pressures for short-term results without requiring long-term shareholders to entirely surrender their ability to hold the managers of their assets accountable. This guy's letter explains that a sunset after seven years would offer an appropriate period to harness whatever benefits of innovation and control a multi-class voting structure may provide while mitigating the agency costs it creates over time. Draft bill also offers a safety valve, which would allow a founder who can make the successful case to shareholders for extending the seven-year startup period to have unlimited extensions of the multi-class structure, assuming each such extension is of seven years or less and is approved by each class of shares voting separately. The provisions of the draft legislation related to diversity would require disclosure of data based on voluntary self-identification on the racial, ethnic, and gender composition of a company's board and nominees for a board seat as well as executive officers. Draft legislation also requires disclosure of any policy plan or strategy adopted by the board or board committee to promote racial, ethnic, and gender diversity at the company. The letter notes that the bill's diversity disclosure provisions are substantially the same as those found in the Improving Corporate Governance Through Diversity Act of 2021, which has been supported by many national organizations ranging from the Urban League to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. CI's letter says these diversity disclosure provisions would provide material information to investors, help improve corporate governance, company performance, and allow companies to take a cost-effective approach to disclosure. CI believes a third provision of the bill giving the SC more authority over stock exchanges listing standards is needed since regulation governing the relationship between the agency and the exchanges were drafted 85 years ago, long before the exchanges became for-profit entities. CI asserts in the letter that there may be times when the SEC is in the best position to respond to a corporate governance listing standard issue rather than waiting for legislation to be enacted or the stock exchanges to pursue a listing standard improvement on their own initiative. Also on March 18th, Senator Brian Schatz of Ohio introduced the Wall Street Tax Act. The act would impose a 0.1% financial transaction tax on each sale of stocks, bonds, and derivatives applicable to the fair market value of equities and bonds and the payment flows under derivatives contracts. Notably, initial public offerings and short-term debt would be accepted from the tax. Also on March 18th, Senate Banking Committee Ranking Member Patrick Toomey, Senate Finance Committee Ranking Member Michael Crapo of Idaho, and Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee Ranking Member Richard Burr of North Carolina sent a letter to Department of Labor's then Acting Secretary Al Stewart expressing concern about the Department of Labor's recent announcement that it will not enforce two fiduciary duty rules issued by the agency in 2020. Department of Labor approved these two final rules last year. The first published on October 30th 
amends the Employee Retirement Income Security Act to codify the agency's current stance that planned fiduciaries must select investments and courses of action based solely on fiduciary considerations relevant to risk-adjusted economic value. The second, finalized by the Department of Labor on December 11th, restricts the types of proxy ballots that fiduciaries are permitted to cast on behalf of pension and 401k plans governed by ERISA. That rule amends the department's 1974 investment duties regulation and requires fiduciaries to cast proxy votes only on issues that have an economic impact on their pension or 401k plans. That rule was proposed as part of an April 2019 executive order from the Trump administration for a complete review of the Department of Labor's guidance on fiduciary responsibilities for proxy voting. The letter from the three senators asserts that the Department of Labor's refusal to enforce these rules will harm America's retirement savings by allowing planned fiduciaries to sacrifice investment returns to promote non-pecuniary policy objectives like social justice, diversity quotas, and lower carbon emissions. Three senators also argue that Department of Labor's decision to not enforce the rules is particularly concerning because it reportedly came after asset managers lobbied the Biden administration for this outcome. The three senators allege that asset managers that sell ESG funds, which are a growing profit center for asset managers, stand to benefit from the Department of Labor's decision. On March 25th, Senate Minority Leader Charles E. Schumer of New York filed a motion to limit debate on the nomination of Gary Gensler to be an SEC commissioner for the remainder of the term expiring June 5th, 2021. Further action on Mr. Gensler's nomination expected to occur the week of April 12th. Also on March 25th, Senate Banking Committee Ranking Member Patrick Toomey sent a letter to Acting Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Allison Heron Lee requesting additional information on the Commission's recent announcement of a newly created enforcement task force focused on climate, environmental, social, and governance issues, which came on the heels of two previous SEC press releases trumpeting an enhanced focus on climate-related priorities. Arguing that these announcements appear to signal major changes in longstanding practices on disclosure and enforcement matters at the SEC, Ranking Member Toomey cautions that such changes would be premature as the Commission has not yet completed its review and updates to the 2010 SEC guidance regarding climate change disclosures and President Biden's nominee to serve as SEC Chair Gary Gensler still pending Senate confirmation. Ranking member Toomey stresses that the SEC should not use enforcement actions as a backdoor for imposing new regulations on ESG and climate change issues and urges the commission to provide fair notice and fully comply with the Administrative Procedure Act if it is going to impose new requirements. Also on March 25th, a joint resolution was introduced by Chairman Sherrod Brown and referred to the Senate Banking Committee, providing for congressional disapproval under Chapter 8 of Title V of the United States Code of the rule submitted by the Securities Exchange Commission related to procedural requirements and resubmission thresholds under Exchange Act Rule 14A-8. Moving now to the Biden administration, on March 10th, Department of Labor announced that until it publishes further guidance, the department will not enforce its final rules amending its investment duties regulation under Title I of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974 that would, one, require planned fiduciaries to select 
investments, investment courses of action based solely on pecuniary factors, and two, address obligations of planned fiduciaries under ERISA when voting proxies and exercising other shareholder rights in connection with plan investments in shares of stock. Further, the Department of Labor will not pursue enforcement actions against any planned fiduciary based on a failure to comply with those final rules with respect to an investment, including a qualified default investment alternative or investment course of action, or with respect to an exercise of shareholder rights. In the interim, the Department of Labor intends to revisit these rules, reporting that has heard from a wide variety of stakeholders who have questioned whether the final rules, one, properly reflect the scope of fiduciaries' duties under ERISA to act prudently and solely in the interest of plan participants and beneficiaries, and two, fail to adequately consider and address the substantial evidence submitted by public commentators on the use of environmental, social, and governance considerations in improving investment value and long-term investment returns for retirement investors. Finally, uh, let's end with some recent activities of the Securities Exchange Commission. On March 5th, the SEC announced that its 2020 examination priorities would include a greater focus on climate-related risk. Acting SEC Chair Allison Heron Lee stated that this year, the division is enhancing its focus on climate and ESG-related risk by examining proxy voting policies and practices to ensure voting aligns with investors' best interests and expectations, as well as firms' business continuity plans in light of intensifying physical risks associated with climate change. Acting Chair Lee stated that through these and other efforts, we are integrating climate and ESG considerations into the agency's broader regulatory framework. On March 4th, the SEC announced that it is creating a climate and ESG task force in the Division of Enforcement, which will identify any material gaps or misstatements in companies' disclosure of climate risks under existing rules. The task force also will analyze disclosure and compliance issues related to investment advisors and funds' ESG strategies. Its work will complement the agency's other initiatives in this area, including the recent appointment of Satyam Khanna as a senior policy advisor for climate and ESG. Also on March 4th, SEC Commissioners Hester Peirce and Elad Roisman issued a cautionary joint public statement entitled Enhancing Focus on the SEC's Enhanced Climate Change Efforts. The two commissioners noted that the SEC has been reviewing companies' disclosure, assessing their compliance with disclosure requirements, and engaging with them on climate change and a variety of issues that fall under the ESG umbrella for decades. Statement said, given this history, we assume that the new initiative is simply a continuation of the work the staff has been doing for more than a decade and not a program to assess public father's disclosure against any new standards or expectations. On March 11th, the SEC's Investor Advisory Committee heard conflicting views on the benefits of the increasing popularity of special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs. SPACs are shell companies formed for the sole purpose of acquiring an existing operating company. After initial public offering, a SPAC uses its newly acquired investor capital to fund a merger with an operating company. Operating companies go public through a SPAC merger as an alternative to the traditional initial public offering process. The investor, the investor Advisory Committee hosted a panel on SPACs that included Dan Primack, business editor at Axios, Chazlin Orell, 
National Head of SPAC Practice at Goodwin Proctor, Michael Orog, an Assistant Professor of Law at NYU School of Law, and Michael Donovan, a partner at PJT Partners, and Dana Settle, co-founder of Graycroft. Ms. Arell heralded the SPAC boom as an opportunity to shift value creation from the private to public markets by offering new investment opportunities to public investors. She also said companies benefit from being able to use forward-looking projections under the protection of a safe harbor provision not afforded to companies undertaking a traditional IPO. Mr. Primack acknowledged the growth potential that SPACs present, but insisted that the major benefactor of the entire transaction is the SPAC sponsor or management team. Professor Olrod referred to his research, which found that SPACs historically underperformed the market and long-term investors tend to bear the cost of this underperformance. All panelists argued for either the elimination of the current safe harbor for projections for SPACs or the expansion of the protection to all IPOs. The panelists also agreed that more standardized disclosures are necessary to ensure investors have all the information they need to make informed investment decisions. Also during the meeting, Cambria Allen Ratzlaff, Corporate Governance Director at UAW Retirement Medical Benefits and a CII a board member and secretary, was named vice chair of the Investor Advisory Committee's Investor as Owner Subcommittee. On March 15th, in a major policy speech at the Center for American Progress, acting SEC Chair Allison Heron-Lee laid out her priorities related to ESG information and initiated requests for comment on climate change-related disclosure. Acting Chair Lee, who has been in this role since January and will remain in the position until Gary Gensler is confirmed by the full Senate, stated that during this time, no single issue has been more pressing for me than ensuring that the SEC is fully engaged in confronting the risk and opportunities that climate and ESG pose for investors, our financial system, and our economy. On climate change, Acting Chair Lee indicated that the SEC should focus on other ESG issues, particularly political spending disclosure, which she said is a key to any discussion of sustainability. Acting Chair Lee also supported expanding human capital disclosures, including through guidance to encourage the use of workforce diversity metrics and guidance over rulemaking on board diversity. Acting Chair Lee called attention to the SEC's core mission of protecting shareholder rights. She explained that while disclosure is key, it only works for shareholders. They can effectively use the information overseeing their investments. Notably, Acting Chair Lee said she thinks the commission should give serious thought to revisiting the recently raised thresholds for Rule 14A8 shareholder proposals and consider reversing the mistaken decision to bar proponents from working together on shareholder proposals. She added that the SEC should clearly emphasize the importance of voting as part of fiduciary duties and has asked the commission to revisit the August 2019 guidance for investment advisors out of concern that it discourages fiduciaries from voting. Acting Chair Lee also stated that she has asked the SEC staff to consider reopening for comment the 2016 universal proxy proposal, which would give shareholders full flexibility in a proxy contest to support the combination of director nominees they prefer without having to attend shareholder meetings in person. Acting Chair Lee referred to the IFRS Foundation Proposed Sustainability Standards Board as a promising approach toward the development of an international baseline 
upon which individual jurisdictions could build consistent standards with their own unique consideration. Acting Chair Lee indicated the potential for the SEC to oversee a dedicated domestic standard setter, which would create an ESG reporting framework. She said she believes there should be assurances for ESG disclosures in symmetry with those for the current financial reporting framework. The comment period for public input on climate change disclosures will expire on June 13th, and CII plans to submit a comment letter. On March 17th, in a speech to the Investment Company Institute, SEC Acting Chair Allison Heron Lee expressed support for updating Form N-PX so fund investors can more easily understand how proxy ballots are being cast. She said the SEC will be looking into how to overhaul this disclosure method, but in the shorter term, she's asked the staff to develop options for how the commission can improve transparency using existing data sources, including the possible creation of a website to present this information. Acting Chair Lee also said she intends to reexamine a rule proposed by the SEC 11 years ago that would implement a Dodd-Frank provision requiring certain institutional investment managers report on Form N-PX their votes on executive compensation. On March 18th, CI sent a letter to the SEC expressing support for some provisions in its proposal to amend Rule 144. Under the proposed changes to the rule, those filing Form 144 would have the option to disclose any plans or purchases made using Rule 10b-5-1 trading plan. CI's letter recommends making this disclosure a requirement. December 2021, CI submitted a rulemaking petition to the SEC recommending improvements to Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans, which included providing long-term shareholders with reasonable access to information about insider trades that complete the partial picture provided by Section 16 of Rule 144 filings. CI's letter also supports the mandatory electronic filing of Form 144. On March 19th, the SEC's Asset Management Advisory Committee heard a range of views from corporate executives and asset managers on how the agency should regulate environmental, social, and governance disclosures. The discussion followed the ESG subcommittee's potential recommendations in December, which called on the SEC to, one, adopt required standards for public companies disclose material ESG risks, two, use standard setters frameworks to require disclosure of material ESG risk, and three, require material ESG risk to be disclosed in a manner consistent with the presentation of other financial disclosures. The wide array of views was clear from the SEC opening remarks. Commissioner Carolyn Crenshaw said that what the SEC should work toward is a clear disclosure regime that yields consistent, comparable, reliable, and understandable ESG disclosures to investors. But Commissioners Hester Peirce and Elad Roseman expressed caution. Commissioner Peirce said she was happy to consider new SEC mandates for specific metrics that are likely to be material to every issuer in every industry, but urged the committee to rethink the wisdom of recommending that we embark on a program to write standards for a set of issues nobody can define. Corporate panelists at the meeting emphasized the need for required disclosures to be material and provide companies a degree of flexibility. They also expressed frustration with what are described as constant requests for data by ESG ratings providers. Marissa Buchanan, Global Head of Sustainability at J.P. Morgan Chase, told the committee that existing voluntary disclosure frameworks, such as the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, or SASB, the Global Reporting Initiative, or GRI, and the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, 
are a great foundation that the SEC should leverage. She cautioned, though, that ESG disclosure be designed to provide lenders and investors with the right information that allows them to make informed decisions. But she observed that conversations about mandatory ESG disclosure seem to aim at achieving broader public policy change. Yafit Cohen, chief sustainability officer of the Travelers Company, offered five principles that the SEC should keep in mind as it considers how to regulate ESG disclosure. One, stay focused on value rather than values. Two, new disclosure requirements should be rooted in the U.S. Supreme Court's definition of materiality. Three, ESG disclosure should be principle-based, not prescriptive. Four, the SEC should provide a liability safe harbor. And five, any SEC requirements for ESG disclosure should go through the usual notice and comment process. Investor panelist Sandy Bass, head of global investment stewardship of BlackRock, and Carolina San Martin, managing director at Wellington Management, emphasized their interest in material ESG disclosures and the role that ESG issues play in driving long-term value. As San Martin said that the first tenet of our ESG integration philosophy is the belief that material, environmental, social governance issues are strategic business issues that can impact financial performance. Both spoke favorably about the SASB and the TCFD disclosures. They also urged the SEC to level the disclosure playing field for public and private companies. As Bass said, if we have a world in which only listed companies are making these disclosures, that may be problematic because we don't want to see a world where all carbon intensity sort of migrates to the private sector. On March 22nd, the SEC launched a new webpage on its website to bring together agency actions and the latest information about climate and environmental, social, and governance investing. In response to increased investor demand for this information, the page will appear on the front page of sec.gov and will be updated as the agency continues to respond to investors. On March 24th, the SEC unanimously voted to adopt interim final amendments to Forms 20F, 40F, 10K, and N-CSR to implement the disclosure and submission requirements of the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act enacted in December 2020. Among its measures, Section 2 of the Act directs the Commission to identify each covered issuer that has retained a registered public accounting firm to issue an audit report where that firm has a branch or office that, one, is located in a foreign jurisdiction, and two, that the PCOB has determined that it is unable to inspect or investigate completely because of a position taken by an authority in the foreign jurisdiction. Such identified registrants must submit documentation to the SEC, establishing they are not owned or controlled by a governmental entity in that foreign jurisdiction, and the amendments prescribe the timing and the means by which such submissions will be made. However, neither the amendments nor the act specify the particular types of documentation that can or should be submitted for this purpose, providing registrants as an initial matter flexibility to determine how best to satisfy this requirement. Section 3 of the Act provides that commission-identified issuers that are foreign issuers must also disclose, among other information, one, that the registered public accounting firm has prepared an audit report for the issuer during the period covered by the form, and two, the percentage of the shares of the issuer owned by governmental entities in the foreign jurisdiction which the issuer is incorporated or otherwise organized. The interim final amendments update the aforementioned forms provide for these new disclosure requirements. For fiscal years beginning after December 31, 2020, and once the PCOB has made its determination pursuant to the act, 
the SEC will identify registrants pursuant to the act based on the board's determination and on registrants' annual reports. The commission will issue appropriate notice once it has established a process by which it will begin to identify registrants pursuant to the act and request comment on the appropriate mechanics for determining commission-identified issuers. A registrant will not be required to comply with the Section 2 submission requirement or the Section 3 disclosure requirements until the commission identifies it as having a non-inspection year. Notably, the Act also directs the SEC to prohibit trading in a registrant's securities if it is determined to be a commission-identified issuer for three consecutive years. The SEC staff is assessing how best to implement this requirement, and the commission plans to separately address its implementation in a future notice and comment process. The interim amendments will become effective 30 days following their publication in the Federal Register. The Council of Institutional Investors plans to comment on those amendments. On March 25th, CI sent a letter to the SEC supporting the Commission's efforts to take a close look at the structural and disclosure issues surrounding special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, as it contemplates a NASDAQ proposal revising the Lot shareholder requirements for SPACs. CI's letter cites remarks by Acting SEC Chair Lee, in which she called for the Commission to examine how to ensure that, one, SPAC disclosures provide investors with sufficient understanding of the target company's risk operations or other factors. Two, SPAC sponsors and other financial advisors have sufficient incentives to perform robust due diligence. And three, investors have adequate recourse against sponsors or underwriters in the event of inadequate or misleading disclosure. In addition to supporting a thorough examination of SPACs, CI's letter questions why the SEC staff would want to approve a listing standard to revise the round lot shareholder requirement for SPACs, given the SEC's ongoing review of SPACs, the current market conditions, and particularly when SPACs generally impose higher and less transparent costs to investors. That completes my corporate governance and financial regulatory update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at CII.org. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening, and have a happy Easter. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.